Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 29th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear a little more from Alan Wiseman, author of the best-selling book, The World Without Us, which is at its core a gigantic thought experiment, what would happen if human beings suddenly disappeared. And we'll talk to Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie about some big doings at the magazine. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Alan Wiseman. You may have seen him on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart last week. We aired most of my phone interview with him on the June 27th podcast, but there was some interesting stuff we didn't have time for in that episode. We had just talked about his visits to Chernobyl and the Korean DMZ, two places devoid of humans that have experienced a wildlife comeback. And here's what we talked about next. Later on in my research, I also went out into the middle of the ocean into one of the most inaccessible parts of the South Pacific where there are still coral reefs that have been less damaged by human impact because they've barely seen any human impact than any other coral reef system on Earth. I went out there with marine biologists from all over the world in a a Scripps Oceanographic Institution institution expedition, trying to look at, you know, what would the baseline be for a truly healthy ocean that had not been overfished and overflushed with chemicals and all the other things that we dump into the ocean. And from those examples, I started to get an idea of what the world might look like without us. But then it occurred to me to really understand I would also have to get a baseline for what was the world like before us? Mm -hmm. What was it like before there were any human beings at all? So I went back to Africa, to the place where humans originally evolved. And this is a continent where there are still huge animals roaming around. And it turns out that we used to have huge animals on all the other continents as well, and on many of the islands. And it seems that one after another... uh, were discovered by human beings, and the great populations of large animals were extirpated rather rather quickly after human arrival. In fact, that North America had bigger and and more uh, animals than Africa does now. North North and South America were two of the richest biotic zones on Earth after the extinction of dinosaurs and the rise of the age of mammals. Uh, we had enormous creatures here. We had giant sloths that were even bigger than the, than the mammoths. Uh, beavers the size of bears. We had beavers the size of bears. We had giant pigs. We had giant armadillos. We had, uh, huge creatures that looked like camels that, that had short trunks. Uh, it was an extraordinary menagerie here. And, and it's quite controversial as to what actually wiped them out, but there, there's a lot of indication that suspiciously points a finger to us, us being Homo sapiens, because their extinction seemed to coincide with the arrival of human beings on landmass after landmass. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, I begged this question for me. Well, if human beings wiped out all the animals on this landmass, then why do we still have big animals in Africa? Mm-hmm. And the answer was explained to me by many of the experts who I interviewed for this book, that Africa is the place where human beings and animals evolved together. And those animals 
learned uh, strategies to avoid our predation, just like zebras have learned how to avoid predation by lions. I mean, not every zebra, of course. I've seen many lions eating zebras, but uh, but enough zebras do survive so that their population continues on. And that's pretty much what they've done with human beings there. Though, of course, in recent years, it's gotten a little more challenging because we've become much more cunning and technologically empowered predators than we were before. You draw the analogy, uh, the... Uh the native, well, at this point, native populations of the the new world, what they had to deal with when they were confronted with the diseases that the old world peoples brought over, and and the sort of a behavioral analogy, the the animals that were here didn't have the behaviors to withstand the behaviors of the people when they first showed up. Yeah, that's uh, th- that is really a fair analogy. Uh, they were confronted with something that they had never seen before. It's just like the Mesoamerican people had never, you know, dealt with smallpox, for example. Uh, these animals had never met a predator who was as adept as we were, and also one that was so well disguised. I mean, we don't look very threatening to a saber-toothed tiger right but uh but we do things that they just had no (laughs) no clue that they'd be in for yeah we've been remarkably effective uh there are some species that do extremely well in invading and conquering the eucalyptus tree the coyote and the human being so here we are later we talked about people's hunger for nature there's no question that we're all kind of longing to get back to the garden mm-hmm. on some level. And so many people live so completely separate from nature, and they don't know what they're missing, but they do sense it. There is such a thirst for this thing. Every time that I talk about this or people ask me, you know, what have I been working on, I end up not being able to shut them up. I mean, mm-hmm. people just get so excited thinking about it, talking about it. There's just sort of this incredible rush of life that surges through them that I realized quickly this was a device that was going to let me do something that I've been trying to do for about the past 15, 20 years, is find ways to write about environmental issues that didn't totally scare people off. Yeah, it's terrific. And, And I've been looking for a way to get people to read to the end of the book. Right, right. You know, th- well, you know, there is a deep spiritual aesthetic of you know the human race at the brink, and and the fact that all right, so whatever happens, uh, well, I'm not articulating this really well, but but I, I think that one of the strongest. Uh, experiences that I've had in doing this book and the response that I'm getting from readers is that it's not a depressing book. It's almost, it's kind of uplifting yeah, in a way. Yeah, exactly. And what's uplifting is that what I've discovered is how resilient life is. Yeah. You know, I mean, we may have screwed up in many ways, but but we're really barely making a dent in life. Yeah, a lot of species are going to go down, but the world has seen a lot worse than us before and it's going to come out fine. 
You can hear the original edit of the interview with Alan Wiseman on the June 27th episode of Science Talk, which is available free at our website, www.siam.com slash podcast, and an edited transcript along with additional audio and video materials about the world without us can be found free on our website in our Archive July issue. That's www.siam.com. We'll be right back. Scientific Americans, RSS feeds. They help you keep up with the latest science trends. Choose from a variety of topic feeds at siam.com slash rss. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, pronouns may keep your working memory from being overloaded, said I. Story two, specialized sweet-sensing molecules found in the tongue have also been found to exist in the human intestine. Story three, pink for girls? Not so fast. Men and women surveyed said blue was their favorite color and in equal numbers. And story four, scientists have been able to give subjects an out-of-body experience in the laboratory. We'll be back with the answer, but first, John Rennie is the editor-in-chief of Scientific American Magazine. The magazine has undergone some big changes recently, which are both interesting in their own right, and also as an example of the kinds of things that are now happening everywhere as old and new media find ways to work together. I spoke to John in the library at Scientific American. Hey, John, how you doing? Just fine, Steve. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. After all, it's the Scientific American podcast. <laughs> So uh magazine looks a little different these days. Yes, Scientific American just debuted its new redesign, which uh, involves, uh, of course, a new new look for the magazine, but also a certain amount of rethinking how we approach the editorial. What is the intent of the change in the magazine? Well, and, and what are some of the changes that would be obvious to people who who are regular readers or might be of interest to people who aren't regular readers. Sure. I mean, of course, one fact of life of the magazine business is that periodically magazines just redesign themselves partly because it just keeps things fresh. Um, in this case, we, in looking at Scientific American, felt like uh, it was overdue to try to just update the look just so that it continued to look like, you know, a bright contemporary magazine. You know, these days, of course, if you're in the print publishing industry, you have to be very aware, too, of how much uh, people's reading habits and their information needs are, uh, are also being addressed by uh, the Internet, not to mention video. And so you try to put together a magazine with some of those things in mind. And in this case, what we wanted to do was uh, we wanted to try to take advantage of the fact that uh, we could really form in print a better partnership with uh, Siam.com, our website, and have a, a more powerful, more interesting uh, publication as a result. And how does that relationship work, though? Well, you know, traditionally, traditionally going back 10 years or whatever, uh, the the idea for a lot of publications uh print publications is that they would they would come out with whatever they uh were creating in paper and then they would tend to produce uh, some version of that that would appear electronically on their websites um sometimes there would be additional new editorial content uh that's just on the website but in a lot of cases uh, the website was sort of a, just a companion to whatever was being done in print uh and that's in effect what uh, scientific americans website was for for many years too but uh these days of course people are increasingly turning to the web first for sort of fast breaking news about 
about science and technology. And uh, there are wonderful things about uh, the web because, of course, it's it's a highly interactive medium. And it's one where it's a really very well suited for letting people explore their interests in whatever level of depth that they have, um, which is perfect for something like Scientific American. Some people really like to look, you know, at a fairly, fairly quick, uh, breezy, short take on something. And then in many cases, people want to be able to explore the literature right up to the technical papers themselves. So what we're now trying to do is we're trying to work with the print articles and form the right kinds of connections over to uh, uh, pages that people can find on our website that will, uh, in many cases, help them extend their reading experience of, of what they would have had in print. Um, the other amazing thing is that you can take advantage of the the very different deadlines that that uh, things face. You know, for a, a monthly magazine like Scientific American, um, several weeks pass between the time that we put an issue to bed and the time that it shows up in subscribers' mailboxes or shows up on um, on newsstands. Um, but of course, on the web, you can have sort of instantaneous communication. So um, a great thing is that now one fascinating opportunity is that uh, we can put some kinds of articles up on our website first, start to present that information, start to immediately then initiate a kind of conversation with our audience over this and start to draw in their comments, uh, field any kinds of questions they had that we didn't address in the in the original form of that editorial. And we can use that to rework what we would then do in print. So it's, it's uh, sort of like you know, in, in technical journals, they have a peer review. And this is almost like that in a sense. We're able to present uh, some of our articles to our audience and figure out ways to improve them for the rest of the print audience that follows. What's the, I know there's one specific article that was sort of designed with that in mind. Which, which one is that? Well, we've done that, um, a few, a few different times. Um, that we, this was an experiment that we first did last December, um, for an article, uh, that, uh, Kate Wong, uh, on our staff had done writing about the, uh, Lucy's baby. This was the discovery of an Australopithecine infant, um, fossil, an amazing fossil discovery. Right. We had Donald Johansson on the podcast to talk about that, in fact. And, uh, of course, that news actually broke back in September, right around the time that we were getting ready to uh, put an issue of the magazine to bed. So, in this case, uh, Kate was able to put a version of that story up online, and we were then able to use the feedback that we got from readers and from other um, professional scientists who were uh, uh, responding to that article. And we then used that to help enrich that uh, article. So, we're going to be doing a lot more of those kinds of things um, to greater and lesser degrees in the future. What do you say to uh, various people, I hear from them sometimes, who uh, kind of miss the old Scientific American magazine that they really couldn't understand that much? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think a, a lot of us love the old Scientific American. Uh, you know, a lot of us grew up with uh, Scientific American and, and have extremely fond memories of it. Um, it's probably worth at least a footnote that, like many things in our memory, they're not always as trustworthy as you would think. And I think some people would go back and look at some of those old issues and be uh, a little bit disappointed that some things were not exactly the way that they remembered them. But the fact is that for for its time, Scientific American was a fantastic science magazine. The problem is that times are different. Scientific American of the 1950s, and the 1960s, and the 1970s was really not... Um, 
one that was being published against the backdrop of the kind of media that exists today. There are many, many more sources of science information. And the fact is that if uh, we were still publishing um, print articles that were of the the, the same length that we had back in, in those days. And if we were largely illustrating the magazine with lots of black and white photographs and small, uh, fine line drawings, as wonderful as those are, uh, the fact is it would, it would not look very appealing to, uh, most of the people who enjoy Scientific American and benefit from it now. You know, talking about, uh, these people who remember Scientific American in a, in a certain way that, that maybe is not quite, uh, the way it really was. Uh, do you recall the, the email or letter we got from this gentleman who was upset about a, a particular political stance that we took and cited something that we had done and said we would never have done that in the past? Sure. There, there of course, have been a lot of different letters that say exactly that sort of thing, but there was, there was one great one that really came to mind. Um, this guy was writing in because he was complaining about the fact uh, that something that had appeared in a recent issue of the magazine was taking a certain sort of, I, I think, the anti-nuclear weapons stance of some kind. And he was pointing out that this was exactly the kind of thing that just represented what was wrong with the magazine these days, that it had become opinionated and it had these sorts of, of uh, political positions and that this was exactly the sort of thing that never would have appeared in the magazine in the old days. And this was really deeply ironic because the passage he was quoting was from our 50 and 100 and 150 years ago column of the magazine, and he was pointing to something that had been in the magazine 50 years ago. That's great. I, I love that story. I mean, the guy's completely guileless, didn't even realize what page he was looking at and thought it was a fresh opinion <laughs> and say, you would never have done that kind of thing 50 years ago. And, <laughs> actually, yeah, I think we would have. Look at the, look at the top of that page. Hey, why don't you, uh, tell us just, uh, briefly about the single topic issue coming up in September? Yes. Um, this, uh, this September we've got a single topic issue. It's on the subject of food, fat, and famine. Um, and it's, uh, it's really, it looks at the issue of food and its health significance, uh, all around the world. Um, we address issues about, uh, obesity and, uh, why it is that, uh, so many people around the world are getting fat, not just the, uh, the, the rich Americans, but in fact, people in developing countries all around the world. Um, we also talk about the issues of malnutrition, which can, uh, strike people all over the world in, in unusual ways. And we also look at those uh, larger questions about um, how it is we're supposed to keep feeding uh, the uh, perhaps 9 billion people that we'll be uh, facing uh, in the mid-century. And we're going to have a bunch of podcast interviews with some of the authors. Thanks, John. Thank you, Steve. Some of the content of the single topic food issue is available free at our website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, pronouns may keep your brain from being overloaded. Story two, sweet taste sensors on the tongue, also found in the intestines. Story three, women and men both prefer blue to pink. And story four, artificially induced out-of-body experience. Time's up. Story one is true. A study out of the University of South Carolina finds that pronouns may be a way to free up limited working memory in your brain. Functional MRI brain scans of subjects found that a lot more of their brains got activated when they had to deal with proper nouns rather than pronouns, although it could all be a he said, she said kind of thing. The research appeared in the journal Neuro Report. 
Story two is true. The same receptors for sweetness found in the tongue have also been identified in the intestine. That's according to research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The gut's sugar receptors are apparently involved in the reactions that release insulin and other hormones involved in appetite. For more, listen to the August 28th episode of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. And story four is true. Researchers at the Karolinska Institute were able to induce an out-of-body experience in study subjects. Volunteers were shown video of their own field of view along with the visual of somebody poking at where their bodies were in that view while they were actually being poked outside of their own view. The sensation produced is eerily like being out of your own body, according to the volunteers. All of which means that story three about men and women being equally fond of blue is totally bogus. Because a survey of over 200 people found that women strongly preferred reddish hues. For more, check out the new weekly Scientific American Psychology and Neuroscience podcast, 60 Second Psych. There's a new episode every Friday at www.siam.com slash podcast. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.